Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, God's Covenants. The Bible is structured by a series of covenants, all of which are focused on and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The goal of these covenants is to create and redeem a people in whom God might dwell so that they will glorify and enjoy Him forever. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. This morning at uh, really Genesis 6 through 9 in God's covenant with Noah, I'm not going to take the time to read Genesis 6 through 9. That would take uh, quite a bit of time. But I would encourage you actually to just read it and uh, take a look. I'm going to be referencing things throughout. So the text that we're going to be using is Genesis 6, verses 17 and 18, and then Genesis 9, 1 to 11. That's kind of uh, parts of this story, but you can read the whole story. And many of the verses that I'll be using are even outside of those passages. They'll all be up on the screen here, and you can follow along in your Bibles. So Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, and then Genesis 9, 1 to 11. Hear the words of the Sovereign Lord, your Creator, your Sustainer, and your Redeemer. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then in chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I have given you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Last uh, year, I spent the year reading through uh, the works, or a lot of the works, of St. Augustine. I don't, anybody says they've read all of St. Augustine, I would seriously question that. He wrote an immense amount, especially when you're considering he was doing it a couple thousand years ago. But I read a lot of his works, and one of the ones I read is his work, The City of God. And it's considered kind of his magnum opus. In the city of God, Augustine was trying to answer the questions that a lot of believers had. In 410 A.D., something happened that nobody thought was possible. 
And that was that the city of Rome was sacked by Alaric and some of his uh, troops that came in. And nobody had thought the, the city of Rome could be sacked. And suddenly, everybody was saying, if Rome can fall, anything can fall. Who knows what's going to happen? How are we going to live and survive? Which is a somewhat comical question because less than 100 years before, the Roman government had been slaughtering Christians all over the place. And now Christians had kind of forgotten that and were thinking, how are we going to survive in the wake of the fall of Rome? And so Augustine wrote this massive work, The City of God, where he laid out this idea from Scripture. He was covering the entire history of humanity. He said, look, you need to understand there's two cities. There's the city of God, and there's the city of man. Or sometimes it's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And you can see this story throughout Scripture, and you can trace this story down through history. And in fact, it's going to be traced all the way until the very end when God will be all in all, and he will accomplish all of his purposes. And I bring this uh, old book up this morning because... Uh, these two cities are seen in the text that we looked at last week in the covenant of redemption when God said, look, there's a serpent and there's the woman. There's the seed of the serpent and there's the seed of the woman and there's going to be this enmity and this fighting and this strife between the two sets of the seeds. But it's all going to be culminated when one seed, the Lord Jesus, is going to come and he's going to deal with the head of this other line, Satan, and he's going to accomplish salvation and redemption. And when you read the early chapters of Genesis, you see a lot about these two lines. And so we want to talk about that today as we move into the next in the series of covenants. God had a covenant with creation. There's the covenant of redemption. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Noah and the early chapters of these two lines, these two cities, if you will, the city that's headed up by Cain and the city that we're going to see is headed up by Seth, as we look at these two cities, the story kind of culminates and comes to a place in Noah. And God makes this covenant with Noah. And so we want to ask ourselves, what is this covenant with Noah? And how does it apply to us? How does it move the plot, the storyline of Scripture forward? So let's dig in. Now, as I said, in the early chapters of Genesis, if you just sit down and you read your Bible and you start at chapter 4, you will see that there's this tale of these two cities, these two lines. One is an evil line, and the other is a more godly line. One is the line that comes out of Cain. So you notice right when we hit chapter 4, there's been the statement that there's going to be these two seeds. And the next story we read is Cain does what to Abel? He murders him. And interestingly enough, Abel is gone, and we're going to be getting another son that is born to Adam and Eve, which is Seth, but we don't read about Seth immediately. Instead, after Cain kills Abel, we're told that he leaves Yahweh's presence. He leaves the presence of the Lord. Now, obviously, God is everywhere, so he doesn't literally find a place that he can hide where God is not because God is everywhere. But it means he's fleeing, he's trying to get away from the Lord because he does not want to be in covenant with the Lord. And his line is traced down through six generations. We'll get to the seventh generation from Adam before it ever even mentions Seth. 
it, it's just telling you all about the line of Cain before we even get to Seth. And then suddenly in Genesis 4, verse 25 and 26, Seth comes into the picture, which is going back quite a ways because we're, we're generations down in the story of Cain, but it's wanting to make this bifurcation, these two cities that are there. And when Seth is first mentioned, we're told he has a son, and then men began to call on the name of Yahweh. So the first thing we see about Cain is he kills his brother, then he flees the presence of Yahweh. When Seth comes into the picture, what we're told immediately is men start calling upon Yahweh. So these two people are very different in their character. And what's interesting, if you follow the story, the Hebrew writers like to really use a lot of devices in their storytelling. And one of them is the number seven. Whenever you see seven of something, you should usually pay attention because there's something important. And the greatest point of difference between the two lines, between the two cities, is in the seventh generation from Adam in each of them. The seventh generation from Adam in Cain's line is a man named Lamech. And what we're told about Lamech is that he calls his wives in one day and he boasts. He says, look, Cain killed a guy, I've killed seven guys. Everybody was afraid of Cain, Cain's nothing. I am the epitome of brashness and evil. Cain was a wimp. He's, he's as boasting in his evil. On the other hand, in Seth's line, the seventh generation from Adam is Enoch, who, are we who we are told is a man who walked with the Lord, and he walked so closely with God, in the King James it says, and he was not because God took him. It's giving this picture that he was so close to God, the Lord just takes Enoch up and says, you're like one of a kind. I'm going to go ahead and bring you up into my presence. So we have one man who's the depth of depravity and boasts about it. And in the other line, we have a man who's the most righteous guy we've read about so far who walks with God and therefore God takes him and brings him to himself without him apparently even tasting death. So this is all saying, the storyteller's telling us, the covenant of redemption that God made is coming to pass. You're watching the two seeds being developed here, and the further they go, the further apart they become. And it's in this context that we then come to eventually to the story of Noah. And we read that what's happening here is even though there's these two lines, sin is spreading and it's spreading destruction everywhere. So in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And so the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So notice the writer here is piling up some terms. He's trying to let us know people aren't just a little off. Okay? Man, his wickedness is great. And you got to love the, the a bit of hyperbole here that the writer uses, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I mean, they don't think about anything good. They're, they're only dwelling on how to be evil. This is evil. This is sin gone to seed, 
is what the, the writer is telling us. It is terrible. Man does not just occasionally sin. He's eaten up with it. And so we get this statement that God's heart is filled with pain. Now, when you're talking about the Lord, first off, he doesn't have a heart or a soul like we do. This is what's called an anthropomorphism. That's a big word they teach you in school, which means I'm describing something like they're human. Okay, you see it all the time, for example, when we read in the prophets, the trees are going to clap their hands, the rivers are going to shout for joy. Trees didn't have hands back then. That's a statement. I'm trying to put it in human terms to help human beings understand it. And they're saying, look, God's looking down at this, and just as he, he saw creation with joy, there's now pain. Because everything is exactly opposite of the way it was supposed to be. Human beings, rather than bearing the image of God, rather than leading creation, developing creation, being a blessing to creation, What's actually happening is we are destroying creation, we are destroying ourselves, and we are turning away from God completely. It's the exact opposite of the covenant of creation. So this is kind of the context that's going on with Noah. And then the Lord comes, and it seems so bad, and then it gets even a little bit worse in verse 7, and then we finally get some hope in verse 8. Notice in Genesis 6, 7, the Lord says, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Now, if we just stop there, one would say, so then the serpent wins. Because it, it doesn't matter that there was this other line. The covenant of redemption's not going to come to pass. And in fact, the covenant of creation is not going to come to pass. God's apparently decided this is too much hassle. He's going to wipe the whole thing out. And maybe Genesis 7 will begin with God starting with the new creation. Maybe he's just decided this is too bad. Because we're getting this picture that God had warned humanity that rebellion and sin produces death. That was the covenant of creation. Don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, it's going to produce death. And we are seeing death all around us. And in fact, the holy God who must judge sin is coming in and doing it. But notice, the promised judgment is just staggering in its scope. I, I'm going to wipe out everything. Because the picture here is he's wiping it out with water. And if we go back to the beginning of creation, what was the original state we're told creation's like in Genesis 1? It's just a watery chaos. And now all of a sudden, it appears we're going to be right back where the story started. Because see, what sin does is it undoes creation. It rolls everything back. You can see this over and over again. It's not only here in the story with Noah, but when we get to the, the, the ten plagues that come on Egypt, it's like an undoing of creation. We'll talk about this later, but when you look in the book of Jeremiah and the people are going to be sent into exile because they have broken God's covenant, Jeremiah says, I looked and the land was uh, a, a wasteland. It, it was null and void. He uses the exact same two Hebrew words. The only two times they're ever used in Scripture. Tohu wabohu. It is empty and void. There's nothing there. It's used in Genesis 1-2. And then Jeremiah uses it when he looks at their, them rupturing the covenant. He says, it's like we're right back at Genesis 1-2. 
we're, we're undoing creation by our sin. And that's exactly what's going on here in the story with Noah. It looks like everything is going to be back, that all of creation is going to be undone. However, thankfully, the next word in the Hebrew text is but. Really important word. There's a big theological word. But. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor is actually usually translated grace, and the King James has that. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And just as a little tidbit here, I want you to notice, we haven't been told anything else about Noah. I mean, we were told he was born. Uh, But he finds favor. That's the first thing we find about is there's grace from Yahweh towards Noah before we learn anything about who Noah is or whatever. Because friends, if you and I are going to be saved, it always starts with God's grace. Not what you do and not what I do. Because if it's up to what I do, this story's going to end in watery chaos. That's where it's going. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God has promised to save, and he's going to keep the covenant of redemption. God had purposes in the covenant of creation, and it has not been abandoned. He is not giving up. He is going to fulfill those purposes. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. So that's all the background of this story. These two cities are going out. And God is letting us know, I have not forgotten my covenant. Whatever you think is going on, track with the story, I am fulfilling my covenant. So what is God's covenant with Noah? Now, interestingly, this is the first place in the Bible that the word covenant appears. There clearly is a covenant with creation in Genesis 1 and 2. There clearly is a covenant of redemption in Genesis 3.15, which all the other covenants flow out from, those two covenants. But this is the first time the word covenant is actually used, is in Genesis 6.18, when God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Uh, If you're reading, you ought to take a note there that the family's there with the covenant. That's a very encouraging thought to me. That's a very encouraging thought, one that I have claimed and cried out for for my own children and grandchildren all the time. God is gracious and works in family. Secondly, in Genesis 9, this is when they're coming off the ark, God said to Noah and his sons with them, I will now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. So sin had brought judgment, but God makes covenant with Noah and saves Noah through the judgment. And notice what the covenant is here is it's built upon the covenant of creation. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read all these verses because there's just too many things going on here, but I'm going to point out several things to show everything in this is saying the the covenant that I made in creation and redemption still on track. The story I began there, I didn't throw it away. I didn't start with a new story. It's the same story. Now, why do I say this? In both covenants, the covenant of creation and this covenant with Noah, there is the command, be fruitful and increase in number. That's Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 9.1-7. You can either jot these down or the outline will be out on the website uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, Secondly, both of these covenants have the command to humans that you are to rule over the animals. 
Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 9.2 and 3. Thirdly, both of these covenants state that humanity is the image of God. Our status as the image of God is front and center in both of these covenants. Genesis 1.26 and 7 and then Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. And then throughout interspersed, not just in specific verses, but there are other concepts that are brought forward. Both of them deal with the family. Both of them deal with animals and even mention a lot of the same terms. Both of them uh, deal with human labor and work. All of these are literary links. The author is, I, I, used, to have a, uh, I used to have a chemistry professor at the Naval Academy, and whenever he'd be droning on in lecture, and some of us who were less studious, like moi, would be starting to fade in the back, suddenly he'd start stomping the ground. And that meant this might show up on a quiz, which means it is going to show up on a quiz. So wake up and pay attention. That's what the writer is doing here. He's stomping on the ground and saying, do you see? I'm telling you what happened when God made everything in Genesis 1 and 2. It's right back on track. Not a different story, same story. Not, I didn't try a covenant, it didn't work. I tried another covenant, that one didn't work. I'll try to, no, no, no. They're all part of my covenant. I am still working. Now, interestingly enough, if you pay attention and you count numbers on all these things, and by the way, just so you know, I'm not the first guy who figured these things out, okay? It's not that Brett sat around and counted all these things this week and figured this out, okay? Lots of people have noted these things. Noah is the 10th generation. 10 is a big number of completion for, uh, for Jewish writers, okay? Because you have 10 fingers, you have 10 toes. When you see 10, it's usually a number of completion. In fact, there are 10 generations or, or table listings of generations in the book of Genesis. The first one's in Genesis 2. We read, now these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when God made them, which sounds really funny that the generations, because the heavens and the earth aren't having children, but that's how it, that's the phrase it actually uses. The Hebrew word is toledot, which means generations or descendants. There are 10 of those in the book of Genesis. And every time one of them comes along, it's the writer stomping his feet saying, everybody wake up, pay attention, this is a big point in the story. And the 10th generation from Adam is actually Noah. And Noah's name, you remember when we talked about the, the culmination of creation, we go through six days and God's been creating everything and it's good and it's good and it's good and it's very good. And then what does God do on the seventh day? He rests. Does anybody want to guess what Noah's name means? Rest. We come to the 10th generation. We come to the guy who's named Rest. And God says, pay attention, I'm about to do something right back here. And again, I'm back where I was with the covenant of creation. Same story is going on. And so what God is doing is he's been telling us, look, I made this covenant and you messed it up. And I made a covenant of redemption with you and you messed it up. And if it's up to you, this whole story is going to fall apart. But it's not up to you. It's up to me, is what God is saying. And God is making covenant, and he's promising to maintain 
creation. He's saying no matter how much you all mess this up, I want you to know you are not going to undo creation. You're not going to roll everything back. I'm going to protect and preserve creation. That's why I've called it the covenant of preservation. Notice in Genesis 8:22 as they're coming off the ark, okay, and the the dove has plucked the olive leaf, the olive branch and brought it to establish peace with Noah and his descendants. And God says this, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. It looked like your sin was going to undo everything, like your sin was going to end the the story, but I am not going to let your sin do that. Your sin will not win. You do not get the last word. I get the last word. And so God promises that the cycles of days and seasons, the weather, everything that had started back in Genesis chapter 1, God says it is on track and it will stay on track because I guarantee, I make covenant that it will stay on track. The story will end the way I've decided the story is going to end. There may be twists, there may be plot turns, there may be things where you say, whoa, I didn't see that coming. But no, the story is going where I have determined it's going to go. Now, let me briefly say, this is not an excuse for human apathy in caring for creation. This does not mean, applying the word today is not, so when you go out the doors, do whatever you want to destroy creation, because God's promised he's going to keep it. Okay, that would be radical disobedience to God's call. The point is, in the original covenant creation, we were supposed to care for creation. That's still on, is what God's saying. But God is saying, even if you fail, I will not let your sin, which is so destructive. Noah, you saw how the entire earth was filled with violence. I'm not going to let you destroy everything. There are boundaries to what you can do. And this is also, by the way, the basis for the stability of the universe, and this is why we have science. Do you ever wonder why it took human beings so long to get to science? Because in many of the things, like I love Greek mythology, but what are the gods like in Greek mythology? They're just wildly capricious. I mean, they just wake up and Zeus is having a bad hair day, so he just starts doing stuff. And you can't ever tell. They don't act the same way today that they did yesterday. Everything is utterly unpredictable. So what's the point in trying to study the creation around you? There's really no point because you can't know what's going to happen because the gods may just change things tomorrow. But see, Christians looked at this and said, no, 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 God, God is stable. The story is the same, and God has promised there's going to be summer and winter and seed time and harvest and day and night and all these regular cycles and seasons and years. Therefore, we can actually start to study this stuff and make sense of this stuff. And by the way, that's to the glory of God. That's just a freebie on the side. Second thing that God is doing here is there's still this question of sin because unfortunately, as we're going to see, Noah and his family went on the ark. The other things are dealt with and wiped out, but what went on to the ark with Noah and his sons besides the animals? Sin. It's still there. We are being given a picture, okay? If you and I 
went off to an island by ourselves and started a civilization again, would sin still be a problem? Ooh, yeah. It would still be a problem. So when Noah comes off the ark, how are we going to deal with sin? And God immediately goes to, you remember the very first sin recorded after Adam and Eve was murder, because sin immediately goes to extremes. God brings up murder again, and this is in Genesis 9, 6. And God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. This is the covenantal basis for human government. Because God here is not saying, if somebody kills another human being, I'm going to get them back. God is saying, I'm telling you, if somebody murders a human being, you have to bring justice against the person who does this. Because a human being is the image of God. And so you cannot let it just pass that somebody strikes out at the image of God. Sin had spread so rapidly and so destructively that it has to be restrained. And so God is saying here, you're going to have to work to restrain sin. He goes again, the first one that we had read about was murder. We're right back after the covenant of redemption. And God says, look, there's going to be things. Murder is still going to exist. And when it is, you all are going to have to do something to deal with it. Government's main purpose is to restrain evil and to encourage righteousness. Another passage of Scripture that brings us up and talks about it is Romans chapter 13. Paul deals with this exact concept, and he's, he's actually kind of meditating a little bit here on Genesis 9-6, and he says this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing." He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So notice here, Paul, he's looking back at Noah and he's saying, look, the institution of human government is God's idea, not our idea. God is the one who has established authority. They're part of his covenantal provision for us. And so government exists to commend the good, and to punish the evil. And Paul even says, and they have the power of the sword, which is capital punishments, what he's referring to, which goes back to Genesis 9, 6. Now, the funny thing is, if I were to ask you, do governments always do this very well? No. Which, if you're tracking with the story, how, how well do we implement God's covenants? The answer is always poorly. Okay, very poorly. Now, as you look around, you might say, well, they, they, they fall terribly short. If Paul could see our government, but I'm going to ask somebody here who's a history major, does anybody remember who the Caesar was when Paul wrote these words to the Romans? Nero. Help me out. Good guy, bad guy. Okay, completely crazy guy. 
Let's be honest, okay? I'm talking about epically bad. You've never had a government official in America remotely close to the crazy of the guy that was in charge when Paul wrote these words. Now, why I bring this up is government falls far, this is hard to get out, falls far short. One of these days I'm going to have to get another job instead of speaking for a living. Um, But you know what's worse than the, the worst government? No government. Anarchy. Go back and read in Genesis 6. Every inclination of their heart was always evil all the time because everybody's just doing whatever they want when you fast forward to israel we read one time everyone did what was right in their own eyes and when that's the case bar the door you're in trouble you you don't want that and nor do i and so god here is saying look you fall short like you do in every area of covenant but an imperfect government is better than no government at all. And so God gives this here as part of his preservation. He's saying, here's one way that I'm going to restrain sin. Sin is so bad, it will eat up everything. It'll put you back into a watery chaos. And to prevent that, there is government. It is there to help stop that. And the basis for all of this notice is the image of God. In Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, here's why, in the image of God has God made man. We are the image of God, and so murder and other crimes against that image have to be punished. But we are the image of God, and so we're able to execute a measure of justice properly. See, this is one of the differences between human beings and animals. Who rules the lion pride? Just the biggest, strongest lion. And does he sit around during the day thinking about, I wonder what would be a just way to rule the pride lands? Okay, I know they do that in the Lion King. That's called children's fiction. What do lions think? Hungry, eat. That, that's, that's as deep as it goes, guys. But humans are the image of God. We can ponder justice and mercy and do what is right rather than what is wrong. And so God says, you're going to need to set this up to restrain evil. You're going to promote righteousness in the common good. I'm trying to restore what you messed up. Now, this covenant that we're doing deals with a concept that is known as covenant grace. I'm making you guys think a little bit, so everybody put their thinking caps on, okay? There's a concept that is known as common grace. In Genesis 9, 16... God says that about this covenant, whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So interestingly, this covenant is not just even with humanity. It's with all creatures. It is common. This is not just with the seed of the woman. This is with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is with humans and animals and in fact all the land and the plants and every part of creation not just to redeem and so it's come to be known as common grace 
Common grace means every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. That's, that's the definition by a, a theologian named John Murray. What it means is sin would destroy everything if God didn't somehow give grace to restrain it. And that grace is not, does not save you and me but it does restrain the effects of sin. Now, if you're honest and you look out there, how messed up is this world? It's messed up. It's very messed up. And if you don't believe that, you definitely need to get out of the house more. It is a mess. That is the effect of sin. But here's a sad truth. If God's common grace wasn't restraining that, oh, it would be far worse. Far worse far worse. And so God says, I'm making a covenant, and I, I hang my bow. It's actually, the, the word's not even rainbow. Hebrew doesn't have a word for rainbow. It's the same word for bow and arrows. I'm, I'm hanging my bow in the clouds. I, I'm not coming down and executing a flood again. I'm letting you know, every time you see that, I'm saying that I'm, I'm done with that. And the bow, by the way, just there's all kinds of analogies here I can't even go into. Which way is the bow point? Where, where's the weapon aimed? It's aimed up because who's going to bear the covenant curse? Who bears every covenant curse? Jesus does for us. You've you got to keep reading these things looking for Christ. He's the fulfillment of this covenant. God says, every time I see this, I'm remembering this, and I'm going to keep it. And so common grace restrains these effects of sin so that we don't destroy everything, and it's doing this in order that God's purposes, his covenant plans are going to be accomplished. God is going to fulfill both the covenant of creation and redemption. And what undergirds that and keeps it going is common grace. Because if God only showed grace to just his covenant people, the church, the whole world would still get destroyed. There would be no context for us. Now, how do we apply this I'm going to ask two questions, which have got kind of a number of points, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. The first question is, do I understand this thing of common grace? This covenant is a covenant that's about common grace. And it's imperative for us to learn this because I think most evangelicals do not get this. We have a tendency to, to think in very stark terms like God has nothing to do with unbelievers or we merge everybody together. But God cares for and works even with those who deny him. You, you can be an atheist who's been gifted by God with great intelligence that you are using to try and prove that the very God who gave you intelligence and the air you breathe does not exist. And that's still a gift of God's grace. Government. Do you have to be a Christian to be in government? No, you do not. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, I would rather have a, he used the phrase Mohammedan, I would rather have a Muslim who knows justice and has been gifted to rule society well than a Christian who's not gifted to rule well. Because civil government's a different thing than the church. And so we have to understand this, uh, that 
God's established this government in human cultures to restrain the effects of sin, to promote human flourishing, and he uses both believers and unbelievers because it's common grace that undergirds it. Now, like everything else, it falls short, but even the worst are better than none at all, okay? And they're all a reflection of God's common grace. And so what this means for you and I, and I want us to think about it in applying the word is, as Christians, we have to work with unbelievers to promote our culture and our government and to promote the common good. We don't just work only with Christians. We work with people who've been gifted. I've made this quip, and I used to have some pastors look at me strangely, okay? I've said this before, but if I suddenly need brain surgery tomorrow, my first question to the brain surgeon is not, are you a Christian and how was your quiet time this morning? My first question is, did you really pay attention the week they taught brain surgery in medical school? Because before you cut my head open and start digging around in there, I want to know that you know what you're doing. And being a Christian doesn't make you a good brain surgeon. Being a good brain surgeon makes you a good brain surgeon. Now, do I want the brain surgeon to become a Christian? Absolutely. I would love for him to be a Christian. But common grace is what underlines those. And so we work together with believers and unbelievers. In the scripture, God, you remember later on for another covenant that we're going to come to, his people are sent into exile. This is in the book of Jeremiah. And there were prophets who said, listen, don't work with those heathen. Don't even unpack your bags. You're coming back to the promised land. Just you stay separate from them, have nothing to do with them. They're wicked Babylon. And Jeremiah wrote and says, the Lord says they need to shut their mouths. Don't listen to them. They are prophesying lies in my name. And here's God's instruction, Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you in exile. The Hebrew peace and prosperity is only one word. Guess what it is? Shalom. Seek the shalom of pagan Babylon, the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it has shalom, you too will have shalom. That word prosper there every time is the word shalom. And so God is telling them, pray for the place of your exile, because if it experiences shalom, three times, if it experiences shalom, you're going to have shalom. But what's the unwritten almost threat? If it doesn't experience shalom, nor are you. Don't think you're going to get shalom while it doesn't. Not the way it works. This is common grace. If you want it, then work for it in Babylon. Now I'm going to ask a theological question. How many of you live in Babylon? If you're here today, you live in Babylon. All Christians, all times, live in Babylon. You can read in 1 Peter where he uses this analogy. I'm writing to the dispersion, the Christians who are spread throughout. He refers to it as Babylon. This is where we live. What do we need to be doing in Babylon? 
praying and working for the peace of our city. What did Daniel do? See, Daniel's one of the people that got Jeremiah's letter. Does it seem curious to you? Who did Daniel work for? What was that first emperor's name? Nebuchadnezzar. Somebody help me out. Righteous guy, loving Yahweh, serving him with all of his heart. Yeah, yeah, right. God eventually heard. But you remember, there's a, along the way, there's the, I built an idol. You must bow down and worship it. If you don't, I'll throw you in the fire. Okay? He's still serving when it's Belshazzar, who you remember says, bring out the articles from Yahweh's temple. Let's basically have an orgy here with them. And Daniel somehow works for this guy. I don't know the answer to how he did that. But it does give me some food to think about common grace. I work even with unbelievers. Now, Christians who don't understand this have been tempted to run into one or two ditches. They either separate the two cities. We're in the city of the seed of the woman. We have nothing to do with those people. And God says you have no choice but to have something to do with them. Or we merge the two cities into one. And we try and say, we're going to make that city the city of God. And God says, you can't do that. There is a city of God in the earth today. Look around. You're in it. It's called the church. Everywhere the local church gathers. And because of this covenant that's going on here with Noah, you and I are citizens of both cities. If you are a Christian, you are a citizen of the city of God. But by birth in humanity, you're automatically a citizen of the city of man. It's who we are. And so we have to help. Whether somebody is a believer or an unbeliever, I want to labor with them as much as I possibly can to work for the prospering, the shalom of the city in which I live. That's what we try to do. Sometimes it's not, it's not always easy. Okay, But Christians who totally separate the two cities become isolationists, and then they suffer when the culture falls into decay. Because oddly enough, if people who are understanding God's intent and God's design and God's way say, I'm not going to get involved in the arts. I'm not going to get involved in politics. I'm not going to write literature. I don't want to be involved in the school system. Can I go ahead and prophesy how that's going to turn out? All the people have pulled out, and then it's going to go its own way. Okay? The other option that some, again, want to do is Christians who want to merge the two cities try to dominate politically. And that always, always, always ends up undermining the gospel by conflating temporal political issues with the gospel, which is about a different age and a different time. Friends, you can go back and study church history. Constantine came in, and I'm really grateful he stopped killing Christians. I'll give him an A+. Plus. But he wanted to merge the church and the state. It did not go well for the church. It did, and we've been trying to undo that for now 1,700 years. Okay, Christians have done it. So do you and I understand this? Do I understand 
God's common grace so that I realize even unbelievers can be used by God to produce incredible culture and establish good government. And if you read with your eyes open in Genesis 4, guess which line it is that does most of the culture. Guess who creates music, who, who does technology and the first tools that we're told about and starts building cities and builds culture. Do you think it's Cain's line or Seth's line? It's Cain's. For some reason, God seems to spread common grace around a lot, even among unbelievers. Go back and read it in Genesis 4. It's not that God's against music. He's not saying music came from Cain, therefore music's evil. There's just cultural flourishing and production, and God points out specifically it came through Cain's line. Do you understand this? And one question for you to work on this week, and then I'll move to the second one and we'll come to the table. Am I more prone to isolation or conflation? Am I more prone to say, I'm going to get over in my little corner and all the Christians are going to huddle together and we'll let whatever go on out there go on out there? Or am I more prone to saying, we're going to merge these two together and I'm going to turn the city of man into the city of God? We, we tend to one of these two ditches, like we've been seeing all along in every one of these covenants. So that's something for you to ask yourself a question about, which am I prone to do? And then you might want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you be away from that. Second area, and this is less intellectual. Do I understand God's judgment and saving grace? See, this story that this covenant is wrapped up in reminds us of the destructive nature of sin. And it reminds us that God judges sin. Not a popular concept, and I understand that. But God judges sin because sin is destructive. And judgment is putting an end to it before it does destroy everything. The New Testament uses this story multiple times, always as a warning of coming final judgment. You can read in Matthew 24, 36 to 41, Noah is a picture of the final judgment at the end of days. You can read in Luke 17, verses 26 and 27, Noah is a picture of final judgment. You can read in 2 Peter 3, where those who were mocking the idea that God is going to judge the world, and Peter says, you're forgetting Noah. God has already done this and brought it forward. God is crystal clear. Every one of us are going to face judgment. Now, just as we can easily falsely conflate the two cities or the two kingdoms, we can conflate common grace and saving grace. Somebody may have tons of common grace, and they may be a gifted artist or musician. They may be gifted at governing or creating technology and helping people flourish. That will not save you on Judgment Day. It will not save. On that day, no amount of gifts or working for the common good is going to pass the judgment bar of a holy God. There is only one way to be saved from the flood of God's wrath. You gotta be in the ark. It's plain and simple, you gotta be in the ark. And it's very clear biblically, Jesus Christ is the ark. If you read in 1 Peter 3, 
18 to 22, you'll see there there's another place where Noah is brought up and the reference is back to Jesus. The only one who can bring you and I through the flood of God's judgment is Jesus. There is no other hope. And friends, that does not come by common grace. That comes by saving grace. So the question for every one of us is, are you looking to him? Are you in the ark? I don't ever take for granted because the answer is not, well, I'm an American. That doesn't matter. I, I grew up down in Georgia. Okay, in Georgia, you know, you're like born, slapped on the backside, given a social security number and asked which Baptist church you want to be part of. Okay, that's the way it works in Georgia. That does not make you a Christian. That, you're just in common grace. Have you entered the ark? Have you heard the call of God? I urge you with everything in me, everything I have, please enter the ark. There is no other way of salvation. You need to understand the sins we cling to are destroying us. Sin always promises good and then delivers evil. It is deceptive, it is destructive, and all it lives and breathes to do is to remove any sense of blessing and shalom in your life. Flee that and flee to Christ. And if you are a Christian, as we come to this table of saving grace, I want to remind you, we bear a responsibility. It's a great privilege, friends, but we have a responsibility Everyone out there, you know, we pray week after week after week for these missions because there is no ark other than Jesus Christ. And there are billions that have very little access to the gospel, friends. That needs to burden your soul. But it's not just Indonesia, okay? We, we like to think of, you know, well, deepest, darkest Africa. Deepest, darkest Africa is turning to Jesus in a way that I wish America would. Okay? You got neighbors all around you. The estimates are 85% of the people in Anne Arundel County this weekend are not gathering for worship anywhere. Being here doesn't even make you a believer. <laughs> okay? You can hear me lost. But 85% aren't even doing that, okay, right here. When you and I get in our car and you, you drive out of here, you are in the mission field, friends. And we are like Noah. Now, if you just work with me for a second, when Noah started building the ark, what do you think his neighbors asked? Uh, what you doing there, dude? I mean, this, this could make like a great Simpsons episode or something, right? Yeah. And Noah says, oh, there's a flood coming. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. Well, it's going to rain. Uh, see, there's no rain mentioned in the scripture at that point either. Uh, I, don't even, I don't even know what you're talking about, dude. I think somebody's been out in the sun too long. Friends, when you tell people about Jesus, you may get that kind of reaction. And that's Okay. That's okay. It doesn't matter. Because you know what? I gave that reaction to a lot of people until the day God opened my eyes. And suddenly I realized 
the people I've been laughing about were actually loving me and telling me the truth? Are we burdened for the souls of men? Because there's going to come a day where there's going to be a table like this table. And it is going to be everything the human soul has ever longed for. And we want people to be there on that day. And there's only one way to have access to this table and that table, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's not by my righteousness or your righteousness or anything we do. It's by the gift of God's grace. So I encourage you this morning, if you are here as a believer, you are welcome to this table. We're going to come, confess our sins, and receive God's grace, saving grace, not just His common grace, so that we might live for Him. If you need uh, gluten-free, you'll be able to raise your hand in a couple moments and we will bring that to you. But other than that, I encourage you this morning, let's think through what it means to be saved by the ark of Jesus Christ, to be saved by God's incredible grace, to realize that in a world that God looks at and says, this world has to be judged. Over your life and mine, God has written, but, but you found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. And that should produce great thanks in our hearts. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that we have the ark of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have spread a table of grace. And we may come because of the work of Jesus Christ rather than our own. We ask, Lord, that you would meet and minister to us at this table. In Jesus' name, amen. The elements will be handed out. As you get them, hold on to them, and we'll take them together in just three or four minutes. Father, you are a gracious God. It was your generous grace that brought forth creation, making it out of nothing, forming it and bringing forth life and sustaining it moment by moment. In your common grace, you provide richly for all. Sun and rain, seed time and harvest, seed for the sower and bread for the eater. We see the evidence of your goodness all around. But as your people, we have a double portion of your grace. Not only enjoying these gifts of your common grace, but even more the gift of salvation through your saving grace. It is through your saving grace that we come to this table and partake of spiritual bread as the Spirit feeds our souls with Christ, the true bread of heaven. In taking this bread, 
we give you thanks for your great grace, acknowledging you are our creator and our redeemer. Take and eat. Lord, today as we have considered your word, we have been reminded of the awfulness of sin. It defiles, deforms, and destroys everything it touches. In your holiness, you must judge all sin, both now and in eternity. And when we consider this reality, we shudder with fear, for we are filled with sin. But we have great hope, for your mercy has triumphed over judgment. In the days of the flood, when evil abounded, Noah found grace in your eyes and was saved by the ark through the flood of judgment. In our day, evil abounds, but we have found grace in your eyes and are saved by you, Jesus Christ. For you have borne the great flood of the holy wrath against sin, and you will bring us safely through even final judgment day. This is all given through your precious blood, which is paid for our sins, purified us from all unrighteousness, and secured for us every blessing of God. Friends, take and drink, giving thanks for the blood which has redeemed you. Would you please stand with me as I conclude in prayer, and let's cry out to God together. Holy Spirit, you moved upon the waters of creation to bring forth order from chaos and fruitfulness from that which was barren and waste. In the days of Noah, when water again covered the earth, you came like a wind, causing them to recede so that life might flourish again. And on the day of Pentecost, you came in like a mighty rushing wind, filling the disciples imparting your gifts, empowering them to serve God and others. Holy Spirit, we cry out together, come upon us now in fresh Pentecostal power. Blow into our lives, forcing sin to recede and bringing forth the fruit of holiness. Give us your gifts and send us forth to serve in this world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our great ark of deliverance and salvation. And God's people say, amen, amen. My friends, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you as God's people. Go forth blessed and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.